Throughout the 1940s, the Lux Radio Theater was a big hit for CBS. Usually finishing in the top 10 in ratings, the hour-long show used an anthology format to bring adaptations of Broadway shows and Hollywood movies into people's homes. The story and cast changed in each episode, but the host remained the same. For almost nine years, that host was acclaimed director Cecil B. DeMille. Your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. (laughs) Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Over on rival network NBC, they looked to duplicate the success that CBS had with Lux. They came up with a show that would use the same format as Lux, but focused on comedy. The program was only a half hour long, but would also adapt Broadway plays and Hollywood movies and have a different cast each week. They just needed a host. Again, using the idea that Lux was using on CBS, they went to a major Hollywood director, Preston Sturgis. In 1944, Sturgis was on top of the mountain known as Paramount Pictures. His run of movies from 1940 to 1944 is one of the best runs that any director has ever had. Ever. But Sturgis wasn't interested in hosting a radio show. However, he did give NBC a recommendation that they would take him up on. From Radio City in New York, the makers of Old Gold Cigarettes present the Comedy Theater, the only radio program which brings you every week the greatest stars in the greatest comedy. And here is the director of the Old Gold Comedy Theater, Mr. Harold Lloyd. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I can't tell you how happy I am to be here. This week, we're broadcasting from New York. Harold Lloyd was a legend of silent films. And he was also essentially retired when he was hired to host the Old Gold Radio Hour. Old Gold is cigarettes, in case you're wondering, because I did not know that. The series debuted on October 29, 1944, and was canceled after one season. Lloyd appreciated that Sturgis helped him get the job. The two were acquaintances beforehand, Sturgis being an admirer of Lloyd's work. But this wouldn't be the first time that Sturgis would lure Lloyd back into the limelight. One year later, Sturgis would convince Lloyd to step back in front of the cameras one more time for a movie he was directing. A movie that would be the most expensive film either of them had made at that point. A movie that would test their friendship, would get pulled from theaters, and would be the last time Harold Lloyd would make a picture. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, presented by Movie Maker, we're taking a look at the troubled production that occurred when two legends with two different approaches got together to make a movie. Welcome to the industry. By 1930, Preston Sturgis had already been a veteran of World War I, a successful playwright, and perhaps most importantly, the inventor of kiss-proof lipstick. No, seriously, look it up, it's true. But 1930 would be a huge turning point for Sturgis. That was the year he started writing for the pictures. And over the next decade, he became one of the most successful screenwriters in Hollywood. By the end of the 1930s, he wanted to do something no screenwriters did. He wanted to direct. You see, in 1939, you were either a screenwriter or you were a director. You certainly weren't both. There were directors who did write their own scripts, guys like Charlie Chaplin and Frank Capra, but it didn't work the other way around. You didn't go from screenwriting to directing. It just didn't happen. But Sturgis 
had an idea on how to change that. Okay, so he's making four grand a week in 1939. This is Tom Sturgis. He's been a music executive, a teacher, and an author of several books. Oh, and he's also the son of Preston Sturgis. And he keeps saying, hey, can I direct? And I'm like, no, we've got this guy, Mitchell Lyson. He's going to direct Easy Living. And my dad thought it was so glitzy and over the top. So he, he went to them and he said, so here's a script I wrote at home. So you guys don't even own it. And it was called The Biography of a Bum was its original title, The Biography. But then they, somebody said, hey, in Australia, that means ass. So you can't change. You got to change the title. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll let you have it for a dollar if you let me direct. And we have this letter in his files at UCLA and the Paramount Brass came back and they said, a dollar doesn't sound right. It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't sound like a big corporation. How about $10? That title became The Great McGinty. And while McGinty was not a huge hit at the box office, critics loved it and perhaps more importantly, it did turn a profit and earned Sturgis an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Over the next few years, Sturgis would write and direct a string of hits now considered classics. Christmas in July, The Lady Eve, Sullivan's Travels, My Personal Favorite, The Palm Beach Story, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, and Hail the Conquering Hero. And all between 1940 and 1944. And along the way, he developed a stock company of actors known as... The Great Sturgis Acting Company. If you go get all my dad's films once he started, once he started directing, there's the same group of actors in every film. There's William Demarest in every film. There's Al Bridge in every film. Here was the deal. At Paramount, if you were an extra in a film, you got paid for a week. If you had a speaking line, even one line, you got paid for the whole movie. So all his pals got one line. So there's a guy, if you see, there's a guy named Frank Moran, who had been a heavyweight contender for many years and got the, his head kicked in. But he has a big, deep voice like this. So in The Great McGinty, he's driving the car as McGinty and the boss are having a fight in the backseat. And he goes, Dames, they're always trying to get the better of you. Give him a minute, give him a minute, they'll take a mile. That's his whole thing. But for the next 12 weeks, he's getting paid. He's going and picking up my dad's girlfriend and buying cigarettes. And my dad invited these guys to come and hang around on the set. So it was like this beautiful get-together. And it was a big group. There was George Anderson, Georgia Crane, Chester Conklin, Jimmy Conlin, Robert Dudley, Byron Fogler, who I'm hoping I'm saying his name right, Robert Gregg, Harry Hayden, Esther Howard, Arthur Hoyt, J. Farrell McDonald, George Melford, Torben Meyer, Charles R. Moore, Frank Moran, Jack Norton, Franklin Pangborn, Emery Parnell, Victory Potel, Dewey Robinson, Harry Rosenthal, Julius Tannen, Max Wagner, and Robert Warwick were all members of the Great Sturgis Acting Company. Hopefully, I didn't leave any members out. By 1944, things were going great. A Preston Sturgis picture is almost a brand unto itself, much like an Alfred Hitchcock picture. But Sturgis still isn't quite happy. Not completely. He doesn't like working for Paramount and all the rules and restrictions that working for a studio in the 1940s came with. He didn't like the meddling that Paramount executive Buddy De Silva did to his films. And yes, he was well paid. 
but he didn't love the marketing department. And he put a clause in his agreement. Mind you, the man's making uh, six, seven thousand dollars a week in 1944, if you can imagine that when you could buy a brand new car for $3,000, drink a, a martini cost 20 cents. So he's making eight grand a week and he can't imagine that it will ever change. He puts a clause in his agreement that, that he insists on. And that is that if he doesn't uh, approve of the marketing of one of his pictures, there's a 30 day window that he can leave Paramount. He insisted on this, right? So yeah, the money's fine, and I love my nice office and all the perks and everything else. Because his last couple of films, he was writer, director, and producer. So really, you know, a really brilliant spot to be in. But he wanted this 30-day exit. And how's a how's a company going to do that? So they said, listen, we'll do everything, but we're not going to do that. And he said, well, then that's it, and he left. So nine years after starting with Paramount, Sturgis was on his own. And now, here comes Howard Hughes. So, all that time while he was doing that, he was chilling with Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was a known womanizer, freeloader. Uh, if he could save a buck, and that buck co- happened to cost some pub a dollar, tough luck. He was also a pilot, an occasional filmmaker, and an insanely wealthy businessman. And Hughes loved to hang around at a restaurant that Sturgis owned called the Players Club. He took advantage of this one particular feature of my dad's restaurant. My dad had a place called the Players on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, the Players, I mean, the lengths men will go to be unfaithful. The Players had dug a tunnel between its back wall and an underground entrance to the Chateau Marmont which is a very classy, beautiful hotel. And so you could go to, I mean, it wasn't a long tunnel. It was probably 50, 60 feet. But you could entertain your wife at the players and then send her home and slip up to the uh, Chateau Marmont, not being seen by press or detectives or divorce attorneys or anything else. So Howard Hughes apparently loved that about it and loved all the free dinners and made this proposal to my dad. So why don't we go into business together? Sturgis and Hughes created their own studio, California Pictures. Here's how Time Magazine reported on the formation of California Pictures in their March 6, 1944 edition. Last fortnight, two of the most combustible personalities in cinema, air-minded Howard the Outlaw Hughes and gadget brain Preston the Miracle of Morgan's Creek Sturgis, announced their cinnamon schluss. Hollywood braced itself for the sort of thing that happens when hydrogen and a match flame meet. Said Howard Hughes, I want to make one thing clear. I cannot devote any time whatsoever to the motion picture business until the war is over. I did not know of anyone whom I was willing to trust to carry on this business without any attention on my part. Then the opportunity presented itself to make an association with Preston Sturgis, whose work I've always admired for many years but who's always been unavailable because of his contract with Paramount, which recently expired. Here's one man in whom I have complete confidence. I'm happy to turn over to him the full control and direction of all my motion picture activities. Said Preston Sturgis, I am merely going to keep on making movies just the way I've always done. And Sturgis already had an idea 
for his first California Pictures release, a madcap comedy that would bring Harold Lloyd out of retirement. In the world of silent film comedians, there is the holy trinity that is Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Harold Lloyd. Usually in that order, too. But most people probably do not realize just how big of a deal Harold Lloyd was throughout the 1920s. you got to understand that Harold Lloyd was the most popular and successful and profitable movie comedian of the entire decade of the 1920s. Many people who are, you know, Chaplin people or, or Keaton people, Harold made more films than the two of them combined and far more profit, far more. And Harold was a giant. He was a giant figure. This is Annette Lloyd, a silent film historian and an author of numerous books on that subject. Several of those are on Harold Lloyd. And no, despite the name, she's not related to Harold Lloyd. That's just a coincidence. She simply married a guy whose name happened to be Lloyd. I didn't marry him because his last name was Lloyd. I would have married him even if his last name had been Chaplin. But I would have kept my maiden name just to make things easier. <laughs> so if Harold Lloyd was such a big deal, why is it that he's fallen behind Chaplin and Keaton in our hearts and minds? Well, Annette can explain that for you. Harold wouldn't allow his films on television in the 50s. And that cost him at least two generations. So while Chaplin and Keaton were able to live on to the next generation by having their pictures readily available on TV, Harold Lloyd wasn't really interested in it. A show was either 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, very rarely 90 minutes, broken up by commercials. Commercials would run maybe two minutes long, every, say, 15 minutes or so. So you got to understand, even if you have a 90-minute block of time, your program, your movie, is going to be interrupted four times by commercials for soap or beer or cars. You know, in the middle of the girl-shy chase, we're going to be cutting to, you know, Schlitz beer. Harold didn't want that. And if a movie of his somehow managed to get on television, it didn't stay there very long. The first time I ever saw him speak in a film, which was movie crazy, I was home from school sick. This is Suzanne Lloyd, who, unlike Annette, is related to Harold Lloyd. He was her grandfather, but he also raised her, so she refers to him a lot as dad. And something had happened with the distribution at Paramount and they had like a 5% cut of movie crazy. And it ended up on this thing called the million dollar movie where they show it like five times a day and they showed it for a week. He just didn't want his films on television, which was in the long run and what I've been fighting for years is very hard because he lost a lot of ground there because Chaplin was always on and W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy. So that was not very insightful of him. But movie crazy was on and so my grandmother Mimi's with me in the nursery and watching television and he came home and he goes oh hi Susan and I went oh dad you just don't believe it I said you're really a movie star and he went yeah what what do you mean you know and my grandmother knew this was going to be a problem the whole thing was going to explode and I said well because I've been sitting here watching you all day and it's your voice and you say things, 
and you talk to people and it sounds just like you and it it is you i said but it's it's like you a while ago and he went what have you been watching my grandmother said she's been sitting here harold and she's seen movie crazy five times this whole day well he flipped (laughs) and he went what and she said yeah it's on the million dollar movie so I guess he got his lawyers and it didn't show up again on television. Needless to say, Harold Lloyd was very particular about his work. And while, yes, he was a hugely successful silent film star, he also did make a number of talking pictures throughout the 1930s. And so he made Welcome Danger and then he went through the 30s, made a, a sound film in 1930, Feet First, 1932, Movie Crazy, 1934, The Cat's Paw, which is my favorite of his sound films, 1936, The Milky Way, 1938, Professor Beware. And then everything stopped because he wasn't satisfied with Professor Beware, which I think is a really great film. I really like it. But he didn't. And he didn't want to jump into another film until he found a vehicle, a story, a concept that he could really sink his teeth into. That did not happen until I'd say probably about 1945, 46, when Preston Sturgis came along and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Preston Sturgis had an idea for Harold Lloyd, and I think it was a really good idea. It starts out with one of Harold's biggest hits, The Freshman. That story, it, it dealt with a college freshman who went to school and wanted to be popular and in doing so joined the football team. But he has zero experience playing football. So they make him the water boy. And during the big game, everybody got injured and they had no reserve. Harold sees this opportunity and says, put me in coach. But they just tell him, you're just the water boy. You're not a member of the team. And Harold plucked and argued and said, hey, you got to let me on that field. There's nobody left on that bench and I can do this. And he goes on the field and single-handedly wins the game in, in very comedic fashion. But still, it's just, it's a nail biter. The idea Sturgis had was to do a sort of sequel to The Freshman. What happens to that idyllic young man who won the big game? In fact, the ending of The Freshman would serve as the beginning of his new film, a movie called The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. And Harold loved Preston Sturgis and was friends with Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was a good friend of my grandfather's, and they used to bowl together all the time. And they used to play golf together. And Harold loves the idea of this movie so much, he gets himself into shape for it. So he could pull off some of the scenes at the beginning of the picture where he's still supposed to be a young man. So he got a coach and he was running track and jumping hurdles. And he said, okay, I can get into shape. I can do this because the way I move and how I move, nobody can double me doing that. Now, yes, he did have a double, you know, he had a double on some of the thrill pictures. Because remember, the man only had three fingers on his right hand. And that's amazing enough to think of all the stunts that he did just having that 
disability. And in case you did not know this about Harold Lloyd, he was in an accident that left him temporarily blinded, and he also lost half of his palm and the thumb and index finger of his right hand. Though if you watch his movies, it's hard to tell. He typically wore a special glove or a prosthetic to hide it in his movies. But Harold was very enthusiastic about getting back in front of the cameras. I can actually tell you in Harold Lloyd's words, I came out of retirement because I thought we could make one of the best pictures I'd ever made. And I entered it with great enthusiasm. So September of 1945 was when shooting began on the film and it was actually a 116 day shoot, something along that line. Yes, she did say it was a 116-day shoot. And I should point out that it was originally scheduled to be a 64-day shoot. So what took so long? Sturgis did the film at his own pace. And that pace could change from day to day. The rules of Paramount were rigid. Paramount was the business of filmmaking. And you were expected to shoot two to three pages per day, no matter what, and submit your dailies to management, no matter what, whether they were ready or not. And for the first time, he didn't have that restriction on him. And what he didn't realize was the pressure to do that was like diamonds. You know, diamonds are made, they they don't make diamonds in the ocean because there's not enough pressure. They make diamonds because the earth is crushing down on coal. So, that was one of the problems is that, so for instance, when uh, I was telling you the girl, this, this actress whose name was Frances Ramsden was doing the 50th take of, I don't know what you mean, Mr. Diddlebug. Hold on. And my dad would go and talk to her. No, I need a little more nuance. And, I, and 50 takes for lines that when you only had, you know, you only had 10 minutes to get it right, you'd get it right. So that was a big part of it that he felt this freedom because it was his own company and he was the producer. So he, he didn't have the pressure to deliver his three pages a day and would sometimes do, do a half a page a day. And other than Sturgis taking his time, Thomas brought up another problem. Sturgis had hired an actress named Frances Ramson, who had little to no experience to be the female lead. But it wasn't originally supposed to be that way. One of the keys to his success was his secretary, Jeannie Lavelle. And she is the unsung hero of the Preston Sturgis story to me. She was secretary, lover, uh, script girl. And she was the one who was kept him on the, the right path. So two things happened. Number one, he agreed to give Jeannie Lavelle, after all their years together, the starring role in the scene of Harold Diddlebach gave her the starring role. He was like, okay, here's your reward for all those years behind the scenes. You get to be the, the star. It's, it's so gruesome to tell. Um, two weeks before production, my dad had chosen another actress to be the star of that film. Okay. you ready for, uh, for this terrible thing. So two weeks before the movie's supposed to start, he signs a deal with this other woman. And has to tell his girlfriend, his many girlfriend of many years and lover, that he's chosen this other woman to replace her in the movie. Imagine, imagine going home with that. And then he told her, uh, but there's more. And that is that I have fallen in love with this other woman. 
and I'm breaking up with you, and I'm now going to be going out with her. He let her stay on as script girl. So she spent the entire production sitting next to him at the camera watching a, a really weak actress perform the role that was written for her. And some of these takes were, it took him 50 takes to get it right because this girl just wasn't, wasn't very good. This woman. There were a lot of rumors going around that my dad was duped, that people of the day knew that he was weak to a skirt and a cutie and a certain type of woman, and that he may have been suckered into that relationship because it ended as soon as the movie ended. Mind you, that last part is only speculation, but you get the idea. Even Harold Lloyd found working with Ramsden a bit difficult. She really was a young, green actress. I think it was her first film, to tell you the truth. I definitely the first as a leading lady. And there was a lot of dialogue on this. And my mother, Gloria, said that he would sit up at night and work through the dialogue and work through the dialogue and the gestures. And it was a lot for him. But the problem was the girl, she just was so out of her realm that he had to go and start coaching her. And that was hard. This would be Francis Ramsden's only film role. But she wasn't the only problem for the sin of Harold Diddlebach. At first, Preston Sturgis and Harold Lloyd got along great while filmmaking. The two had mutual respect for each other, and it showed. But that didn't last. Harold entered this project because of the amazing promise that this story had. The problem was that Sturgis and Harold at some point, at first they were working together beautifully. Sturgis would ask Harold, what do you think? And Harold would tell him what he thought and Sturgis would say, okay, that's perfect. Let's go with that. But after a while, Sturgis was saying, you know, Harold wanted to inject physical comedy business. And Sturgis would say, well, that business is too good for my dialogue. And Harold would say, well, the heck with your dialogue. We need, you know, comedy. It just cries for business and physical gags and such. So they reached a point where they just weren't agreeing anymore. And it's that's when Harold's heart kind of went out of the film, kind of went out of the picture. They'd watch the dailies together and argue over the best way to do a scene. This led to scenes being shot two ways, Preston's way and then Harold's way. Harold disagreed with, at some point, Sturgis wanted Diddlebach to become or, or to be a schizophrenic drunk. The one thing about and Harold's trying to teach Sturgis about comedy and Sturgis is trying to teach Harold Lloyd about comedy. It was, it was two real geniuses butting heads. But Harold was really very, very... I don't know what the right word is, protective of his character. And he really wanted the audience on your side. You want the audience rooting for you. You don't want the audience to find you so repulsive and so strange and so unusual that they're not rooting for you. Harold had a definite understanding of how this character, in his mind, should be. 
Another issue for Harold would be the lion. In the sin of Harold Diddlebach, Harold has to walk around town with a lion on a rope. And the lion wasn't always in a good mood. Harold told me Jackie the lion was outrageous. He snapped at him. He said I, I, he'd worked with him. I want to say he said he'd worked with him before. But anyway, he just said Jackie was just miserable. And you can see him in this one scene where he's in the office. And Jackie jumps up on the table and, and Harold just kind of comes back. He said he thought that that ant that he was going to lunge at him. He 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 just said I, he was not comfortable with him. In the scene Suzanne is talking about, Harold bursts into a banker's office. The lion eventually hopped on a desk, and while Harold is talking, very clearly snaps at his hand. Harold simply takes it in stride and continues with the scene. It's pretty remarkable. And in addition to dealing with the lion snapping at him and the girlfriend's director as his co-star, Harold also has to deal with the usage of process in the movie's big climactic scene. Process is when you have a background and you're working with the background behind you. And in 1923, when Harold was making Safety Last and climbing up, there was no process. There were no trick backgrounds. Everything that you see was actually there. Even though they did have tricks, they, they had tricks of camera placement and they had tricks of angles and such. But there were no trick backgrounds making you think you're high in the air when you're actually not. There you were actually high in the air. But with Diddlebach, it was all process. There was very little danger very little thrill, and it looked it because of process. The sin of Harold Dillebach eventually wrapped in early 1946, 52 days over schedule and over $600,000 over budget. Now, you have to consider that Sturgis did not have all of the things that he had at Paramount Pictures. Working independently, he no longer had the costume department, the makeup department, the crew, and a studio to work at. Diddlebach was filmed at the rented Samuel Goldwyn studio. And for Sturgis, directing Diddlebach was just one of the many hats he was wearing at the time. Meanwhile, running a restaurant, running an engineering company, palling around with Howard Hughes and, and all the other boys and heading up to the Chateau Marmont, having just broken up with his girlfriend and now taking on a new girlfriend who he's trying to direct. I mean, what a mess. Howard Hughes had stayed out of the production while filming went on. He was too busy with his flying boat, Hercules, or the Spruce Goose, to pay attention. But that changed in a big way. Hughes showed up at a preview screening for Diddlebach, sitting behind Sturgis and Francis Ramsden. When the house lights went up, he had already left. Sturgis took this as a sign, went back and re-edited the movie. The runtime was now about 90 minutes. But Hughes still wasn't happy. And Sturgis had made a huge mistake in his California Pictures deal with Howard Hughes. The idiocy, idiotic decision number two by my dad was to allow that their new company, California Pictures, was 51% Howard Hughes and 49% Preston Sturgis. So what that meant, that 1% meant that Howard Hughes was in control of the company and he could do whatever he needed whenever he needed to. And by the time the movie was released in early 1947, Sturgis had been pushed out of California Pictures completely. 
Now, he wasn't pushed out solely because of Diddlebach, but it was a leading factor. The tipping point came with the second film that California Pictures made, a crime picture called Vendetta. Now, let's back up a little. It's July of 1946, and Howard Hughes has had an accident. Howard Hughes, famous flyer and sportsman, was dragged out of this wreckage of an experimental plane he was testing. He was seriously injured. After ripping the corner from two homes in... The plane crash left Hughes homebound and unable to work on his planes and his other usual business dealings. Sturgis thought it would be a good idea to send over the dailies for Vendetta. After all, Vendetta was starring Hughes' hand-picked starlet, Faith Demure. So naturally, he'd have some extra interest in how the picture was moving along. But Hughes wasn't happy with what he saw. He fired the director, Max Ophels, and ordered Sturgis to take over. Even after Sturgis took over, Hughes still wasn't happy with Vendetta. And this is when Hughes fired Sturgis. Fired him from Vendetta and pushed him out of California Pictures. Hughes felt that they were wasting his money needlessly, taking advantage of him. He then went through a series of directors before taking over himself and shooting some pickup scenes. Vendetta wouldn't be released until December of 1950, when it would be a flop commercially and critically. Okay, now back to 1947 and the premiere of The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. Hughes premiered the picture in beautiful Miami Beach, Florida. Harold Lloyd was there, but neither Sturgis nor Howard Hughes showed up. And the reception was actually pretty good. Critics liked it. They didn't love it necessarily, but they certainly recommended it. And the initial business in the Miami area was solid. It also played in San Francisco, Portland, and Fort Wayne, Indiana, all with similar results. But Howard Hughes still wasn't happy with the picture and pulled it from release. It never got to play New York or Los Angeles. It was just gone. Hughes thought it was too long and too slow and decided to work on it himself. California Pictures essentially ended when Hughes then decided to buy RKO Pictures, the mini-major studio that made Citizen Kane and a number of other classics that Hughes would run into the ground in the 1950s. And the sin of Harold Dillebach became an afterthought for a while. Three years later, the Howard Hughes version, now titled Mad Wednesday, showed up in theaters. He had edited it down to just 76 minutes and also did some reshoots and, for some reason, added a talking horse to the movie. Mad Wednesday, the wildest, wackiest, most hilarious and completely bollocked up day you ever heard of. Mad Wednesday. The uproariously funny story of how a Mr. Milktoast learns to become a big shot. Yes, sir, Wednesday was wild. Wednesday was rugged. Wednesday was the wackiest day ever. This version was not so well received and disappeared quickly from theaters. Howard Hughes thought he would, could be my dad you know, and love being in charge and because there's nobody to say you're right and wrong until the film comes out and the public, you know, finally has a chance to speak. The sad thing really is that the advertising, particularly for Mad Wednesday, the advertising, you wouldn't even know Harold was in it. His name was so, so tiny. It It didn't even exploit the fact that this was Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd wasn't happy about this new cut at all. 
And he certainly wasn't happy about that poster and his diminished billing. He sued for, according to the court papers, and I am quoting here, the impaired and diminished value of the name and reputation of the plaintiff Harold Lloyd in the motion picture industry and in the mind of the general public. Lloyd won and eventually settled the case. That Harold got so mad that he went to court with his lawyers and filed a lawsuit against Howard. And, you know, they didn't speak at all after that. While their friendship was over and they never did speak again, Suzanne Lloyd distinctly remembers hearing from Howard Hughes at an unexpected time. The day that Dad passed, March 8, 1971, uh, I was at the house because he passed at about 3.30 in the afternoon, 3.15 or something. And about 5 o'clock, this huge arrangement from Flower Fashions, uh, Fred Gibbons, who ran Flower Fashions in Beverly Hills, big florist. Dad always bought his flowers from there, and they used to make ornaments for the Christmas tree, actually. Anyway, this huge arrangement of white flowers with orchids and rose, I mean, lily. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. And I remember, um, I don't know, the housekeeper, Clemmy, opened the door or whatever. And they said, well, you better come down and see this. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? Open the card. And it said something like, I love you, Harold. My love to the family, always Howard. And it was from Howard Hughes. Now, how the hell he knew that dad had passed, number one, within two hours, I don't know. But those were the first flowers in the door. And I remember going, oh my God, this is really pretty, you know, amazing. That wasn't the only friendship lost over the sin of Harold Diddlebach. Preston Sturgis loved using actor William Demarest in his pictures. And that ended before Dittelbach even began. He believed that his good luck charm was Bill Demarest. Because Bill Demarest had been in all his hits, and Bill Demarest was this, you know, a brilliant character actor. Another part of the disaster is that Bill Demarest would not appear in the movie because he was under contract where he had been for 20 years. And he would have had to break his contract to come make a movie for my dad. And he wouldn't do it. And my dad was not understanding about that. And they said terrible things to each other, which I don't think Bill Demarest ever recovered from. And when I reached out to him many years later, he was like, uh, I wanted to talk to him about my dad a little bit. He said, I really have nothing to say. Sturgis's career never got back on track after Diddlebach. He did direct one more truly great picture, Unfaithfully Yours for 20th Century Fox in 1948. But even though it's now considered a classic and one of his best pictures, it was a box office failure at the time. For all its flaws, The Sin of Harold Diddlebach isn't really a bad movie. Parts of it are really good. And Tom Sturgis thinks that it may have influenced a modern comedy classic, The Hangover. By the way, a brilliant film, hilarious, but you, if you look deep into its DNA, you go, wow, this is so similar. Harold Lloyd wakes up to a, a lion and he bought a circus. Tell me two other movies that, where a guy wakes up with a lion in the next room or a tiger. And, I mean, there's, it doesn't happen. There's, it's, those are the only two. So when I saw The Hangover and I loved it and laughed my ass off and I went, this is... 
hidden twin sister of the sin of Harold Dittlebach. And yes, while they are definitely very different pictures, in The Hangover, three guys get presumably blackout drunk and wake up in a Las Vegas hotel with a tiger in it, having no memory of the previous night and have to retrace their steps in order to find their missing friend. Oh, and in the process, one of them discovers that he got married. In Diddlebach, Harold gets blackout drunk and wakes up with a lion in his house, having no memory of the previous night. He deals with the consequences of his drunken behavior, which includes a circus that he bought. Oh, and in the process, he also discovers that he got married. Harold Lloyd never made another picture again. Instead, he found himself more and more involved with the Shriners Club and their hospital for crippled children, work that he found far more rewarding than anything he had ever done in pictures. As far as what he thought of the sin of Harold Dittelbach, he later said, I don't want you to get the idea that I don't think he, Sturgis, is a very astute and talented man. He's a tremendous power in the theater. He just got imbued with this idea, in my estimation, and that spoiled the picture. Plus, Howard Hughes, who put all the money up and had the right to do what he wanted, had other ideas, and he did them. And in my estimation, probably not in Howard's, he didn't help the picture either. So there were strong wills at work throughout, but Harold said, so consequently, even though some people may like the picture, I was terribly disappointed because I knew it could have been a magnificent picture, probably one of the best that I'd ever made. And it wasn't, in my opinion. I thought that it had missed very badly. I didn't make it. I wouldn't have made it that way. I thought it easily could have been one of the best pictures I ever made, but it wasn't by a long ways. Don't get me wrong, I think it had some excellent moments in it. And I think my work in it was as good as anything I'd ever done. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. For information about what's going on in movies or how to make them yourself, visit moviemaker.com. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my guests, Tom Sturgis, Annette Lloyd, and Suzanne Lloyd. Tom has a new book out called A Good Divorce Begins Here. And having been through a divorce, I probably could have used this. You can learn more about Harold Lloyd at haroldlloyd.com or check out some of his classic films for free on the Harold Lloyd YouTube page. Thanks to Ariel Nissenblatt, who read the article from Time Magazine. Ariel is the proprietor of the Earbuds Podcast Collective, which sends out a great newsletter with themed podcast suggestions. You should sign up for it. Head on over to earbudspodcastcollective.org to check it out. Music in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or whatever app you have. It helps with ranking, visibility, and basically costs you nothing, and it just might leave you with a warm feeling in your heart. If you really like this episode, you can also visit my website, industrypodcast.org, and hit the Buy Me a Coffee button. 
yes, I will probably use this to buy a coffee because I tend to drink a lot of it. The show notes with a list of sources used for this episode and links to everything will be in the blog section of my website. If you want to get in touch with me, you can certainly do that. Send an email to dan at moviemaker.com. You can also tweet at me. It's at theindustry13. I'm also on Instagram. It's at industry underscore podcast. Or on Facebook, it's at theindustrypod. Thanks again for listening to this episode. My name is Dan Delgado, and I will be back again soon with another seemingly forgotten story from the industry. The Industry.